Good morning. We are glad that you are here. It's my baby girl right there. Keep that kid quiet. Um, we're really glad you're here. We're in the middle of a uh, series. This is, I believe, our 10th week on spiritual gifts. And this morning we're going to be talking about hospitality. So if you're a visitor with us, uh, we are certainly glad that you're here this morning. First of all, it's Labor Day weekend, and you made it to worship. So high fives all around. That is a commendable thing. Um, a high level of spiritual, spirituality for those who made it here on Labor Day weekend. I'm, I'm proud of you all, and I hope we can dig in and enjoy uh, the Lord together this morning. Um, I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump into Romans chapter 12. So let's pray together, and we'll get started. Lord, we come to you now, and we are thankful for this time. I'm thankful for the opportunity that we have to go to your word. I'm thankful for the songs that we just sung, to not only have the privilege, privilege of singing them, but to know that they are, in fact, very true, to know this love from you um, that can so easily ta be taken for granted. I'm thankful that we make sure we sing about it every week and we talk about it every week. And I pray that you would uh, let that have an effect on our hearts and minds this morning as we talk about that love that we have received from you. Lord, I want to pray in general this morning for the other churches in the area. Uh, I'm so thankful for what you've done in the previous years to, to fight against any spirit of um, competition between churches, and I pray that you would continue to do that. I'm thankful for our fellow brothers and sisters who have the same goals that we have because they have the same God that we have, and I pray that we will learn to grow in our appreciation for one another and maybe even grow in how we can do things together, potentially. Uh, as brothers and sisters in Christ, particularly considering the message this morning. So we pray for our fellow churches, our fellow pastors, um, their marriages. We pray for their, their time this morning. They're really enjoying you. We also pray for our city government, Lord. Uh, your word tells us that um, in Jeremiah 29, 7, that in some manner we find our well-being and the well-being of the city that we live in. And so our prayer and our hope is that the city officials, the council, those who serve in that capacity would serve this city well and bless them. Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Turn to Romans chapter 12, and I'm going to read a chunk of verses because I want us to be able to kind of climb into the context. Our focus this morning is on hospitality, and hospitality is mentioned toward the end of these verses, but I want you to see it in its context because that's going to be important for us. So Romans 12, starting in verse 1. I'll let y'all turn there. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. Now, when we're studying the scriptures and we see the word therefore, one good tool is to always say, what is the therefore, therefore? And the reason that the therefore is there this morning, that was, I got through that. I didn't stumble. That was interesting. The reason that it's there is these 11 chapters that preceded about all that God has done for us in Christ. What it was like when we were sinners. He starts at creation. What it's like when we were sinners. What has he done to us? What are our hearts? What did the law have to do with things? How does Christ fulfill that stuff? And it all leads up to 12 where he makes this appeal to the way that we live. So the therefore is not just referencing the verse before, but in fact the 11 chapters before that explain and unfold these mercies of God. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, 
which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what follows is going, to show, is going to be something that shows us what God's will is for us, what is good for us, what is acceptable to him, and what is perfect in the way that we live. He says, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. So from the get-go, I'm going to bring everybody down a notch and make sure that you're not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought to think, rather but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so though many, we are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. This verse is paralleled with 1 Corinthians, something that we've looked at in the previous 10 weeks in this series, and essentially what it means is we have to see ourselves as a body. A body is made up of different members. Each of you are a member of the body, and every member has a, a function or a gift. And when we use it properly, it builds up the church. It builds up the body. And so there's no one here this morning who can say they don't have a gift or they don't have any spiritual influence in their lives because you do. And when you know what you have, you're not allowed to sit on it. It says, let us use them. It, the, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. If you were here last week, you heard Pastor Ben mention the fact that through our reading and through our thinking and through our discussions and through our preaching, we've actually run into some questions regarding spiritual gifts that are frankly just really hard to answer really difficult. He mentioned some of those dynamics last week. Remember he showed the, the, the meme on the screen that essentially said, we have no idea what we're doing, apparently, because this is hard, and we dove in head first, and now we're finding out, wow, there's some, some hard questions that have come up. Some of those questions would be, what is the difference between a spiritual gift and some other action that is spiritual that builds up the church? If it builds up the church, is it automatically a gift or not? How is the church being built up through the use of the gift, and can it be built up in similar means, maybe not by a gift, but by the spiritual motivation? Okay, now, now it's like, okay, it sounds like we're taking crazy pills a little bit because we're, we're having to try to figure this out. What is the purpose of something being a gift if everyone in the church is still called to do the same thing that the specially gifted person is called to do? Believe it or not, our goal in preaching is not to be more confusing. Those questions may sound like, wow, thanks for the sermon. No idea what you're talking about. Our goal in preaching is not to be 
more confusion, uh, confusing. Confusion is something we want to steer away from. We want to let these questions steer us towards truth. One of the things that we know as we study our Bibles is that asking good questions helps you to make better observations of the text. And as your leadership has worked through hard questions, hours and hours of conversation, my hope this morning is that we will let those observations, those questions lead to better observations, which will ultimately lead to clearer interpretations of Scripture and applications that make sense according to the love of God. That's our goal for this morning. So in light of hospitality, in our sermon today, one thing that we're going to consider is that some people have a special gift of hospitality. Remember when Pastor Ben preached on teaching? He said there's sort of a capital T teaching, which is gift, and then there's lowercase t teaching, where uh, everybody's supposed to be doing that in some capacity. And so here we can think of hospitality in those same terms. Some people seem to have a special gift of capital H hospitality. While everyone in the church is supposed to exercise hospitality and both build up the church, but maybe not in the exact same way. Or to say it another way, everyone has a spiritual gift, but not everyone has every spiritual gift. And while you may not have the spiritual gift of hospitality, you're not allowed to use that as an excuse not to be hospitable. Is that clear for y'all? Is that clear as mud? Because that's, that's some of what we're going to be unpacking here. I think that what we can glean from these questions and these observations is this. For today, it is really good for everyone here to have a clear understanding of what biblical hospitality is. And everyone is expected to show hospitality to others. And as we all exercise hospitality, some will grow and find that they have what seems to be a specific and special gift of hospitality through which they profoundly build the church up as they use it. So it's important to everybody, and some people will have a more specialized ability in it. But we've yet to say what it is. So let, let that be our next step. What is hospitality? When I asked this basic question, I was actually quite surprised by what I found. Because what I realized was I brought some unbiblical presuppositions to the conversation on what hospitality is. I had sort of a watered-down view of what biblical hospitality is because of probably the typical Baptist church that I grew up in. What I mean is this. I think we often think of something along the lines, when we think of hospitality, I think we often think of something along the lines as like a spiritual party planner. A spiritual party planner, right? Anytime we have an event, who do we gather up? All right, everybody with the gift of hospitality. We got a women's retreat coming up. Let's get all the hospitality people together and make this event great. Spiritual party planner. We got an annual meeting coming up and an annual meal. All the hospitality people come together and let's have a spiritual party planner. Make this a Christian-y excitement experience, you know, whatever. And um, I think that's watered down. In fact, I've even heard, I've been guilty of this and I've heard it, of maybe even considering hospitality as like a default sort of a gift. A default gift. As like, if you don't teach, at least you can bring a side dish to our next potluck. <laughs> or if you're not in some leadership role, at least you can make some food for someone who needs it and thereby exercise your gift of hospitality. I think those are watered down pictures of what hospitality actually is. Hospitality defined in the Greek 
is philonexia, which means love of strangers. Love toward people you don't know. If you're taking notes, that's pretty important this morning. Hospitality is love of people you don't know. Philozenos means hospitable. We've seen that in Scripture. We exercise hospitality, and some are to be hospitable. We're all to be hospitable. And that means fondness of guests and given to love toward people you don't know, strangers. So this isn't just providing side dishes or meeting general practical needs, and it certainly isn't limited to the role of a spiritual party planner. This has to do with Christian love towards the stranger, towards the person you do not know. John Stott states, if generosity is shown to the needy, hospitality is shown to the strangers. I don't want you to turn to these verses, but I want you to listen closely because it helps to round out some areas where we see hospitality used in Scripture. I'm going to share these with you, and then we're going to look at some Old Testament examples and New Testament examples, and then we're going to look at six or seven application points. I say six or seven because I'm not sure yet. We'll see how it unfolds. In 1 Timothy 5, this love toward people you don't know, love toward the stranger, hospitality, is an expectation of the genuine widow. In 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1, this love toward strangers, towards people you don't know, is in fact required of elders. And it goes further to say they are to be well thought of by outsiders. In 1 Peter 4, it says to show hospitality to one another without grumbling. So your motive matters. You can't be like, oh, we got to be hospitable. Let's have some people over. Ugh. That's not okay. You're not allowed to grumble. Hebrews 13, too, says show hospitality. Do not neglect to show hospitality to the stranger. So it's like show the love of stranger to the stranger. And it goes on to say, and in doing so, some have entertained angels unawares. That's not language we use normally, angels unawares. But it actually points us to something that happened in Genesis 18 that we're going to look at here in a minute. And then here in Romans 12, in our, in our verse for the morning, hospitality, love towards those you don't know, is not simply something to be practiced, but it is to be sought out. It's intentionality. Seek to show hospitality. There will be times in your life where that's more difficult. We're going to talk about that a little bit too. But we're to seek to show hospitality, not just passively in practice. So we have a definition. Now we're going to look at some examples. Turn over to Genesis 18. That Hebrews verse that I just mentioned says that seek to show love toward people you don't know because in doing so, sometimes you may entertain angels unawares. My kids think that word's funny because it sounds like you're saying angel underwear. <laughs> and apparently some of you think that's funny too. <laughs> angels unawares. What are we talking about? It's, it's referring to Genesis 18 where Abraham and Lot are kind of trying to figure out their relationship and where they're going to dwell. And Abraham is in his tent, which is his home. And this happens. And the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. 
When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet. Rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, quick, three sayas of fine flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd, took a calf, tender and good, and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Now we know after the fact that these guests weren't common guests. Two of them were angels and one of them was Jesus. A lunch with Jesus. I don't know whose water this is, but I need it. Sorry. That's something you'll never see Ben do right there. He's a, he's a germaphobe. That may have been from last week, I'm not going to lie. <laughs> a little fuzzy, little fuzzy. So Abraham is at his home. He's at his home, and these, these guests show up. And he goes out of his way to tend to them because they're travelers. It's late in the day, and he cares for them. What I want us to know in this little verse here is that what was uncommon was who the guest ended up being. It ended up being angels, and one of them was Jesus. That's uncommon, but he didn't know that. What was common was how he acted towards his guests, the heart that he had toward them. One of the difficulties in understanding hospitality is that our context is very, very different from that of the ancient context where this was being exercised. In each of these verses, the love of strangers is being exercised in a context where strangers were either traveling through town or strangers were new to town and ends were dangerous and shady places. In all the New Testament examples and even in Genesis 18, if you're a believer and you see someone come in, you're like, you cannot stay at the inn. It is shady. It is dangerous. You can't do that. So taking our lead from Father Abraham in Genesis 18, we're supposed to care about issues like this one. Our context is very different. We have more hotels and motels in this town. Some of them are super shady. You wouldn't want your worst enemy to stay there. Others are fairly nice. It's not hard for people to find a place to stay in our context as it was then. But that doesn't mean we're called to any less measure of hospitality than they were. Hey, thanks, man. I'm going to give that to you. You can have that. Thanks. Don't drink it. Oh, that's much better. We're supposed to care about this issue. As our little subtitle says in Romans 12, it's one of the marks of a true Christian to have love for the stranger, a love that seeks out their well-being with practical accommodations and gospel truth. I want you to write that down, practical accommodations and gospel truth. In the context with Abraham and Lot, and in the context in the early church in the New Testament, this love towards strangers was expressed by opening up your home to them. So that's another piece of the puzzle as we're talking about hospitality. Part of the puzzle is caring about the stranger, showing love to them, and particularly showing love to them by opening up your home to them, especially if you know that they're fellow believers. Whether they're a stranger who's a believer or not, there's a sense in every one of these texts where especially if they're fellow believers, because we don't want to be hypocrites, right? We don't want to be found to be hypocritical where we take care of people outside, but we don't give a rip about our brothers and sisters who we're supposed to love deeply. So there has to be a balance there. Turn to Acts chapter 18. 
I want to look at Aquila and Priscilla. There's a man named Aquila and his wife Priscilla who seem to exercise hospitality in a really God-honoring way. As I read, what I want you to do is try to find the places where love is shown to strangers with practical accommodations and gospel truth. Where is love shown to strangers with practical accommodations and gospel truth? Turn to Acts 18, 1 through 4. <coughs> After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them. And because he was of the same trade, he stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. One of the realities in this context was that Christian persecution had displaced many believers. This is something that was largely foreign to us in our context up until fairly recently, where we see Christians all over the world being displaced because of their belief in Christ. But it was normal in this setting. Christians displaced because of persecution. Aquila and Priscilla had been displaced from Rome because of their faith, but then they got settled into a new place in Corinth. And Paul, this traveling gospeler that you'll hear more about next week in Brad's message in evangelism, Paul's a stranger to them who stays with them. They open their home to him because that's what's fitting. One commentator says, in the New Testament, hospitality was essential because that's how the gospel spread. A lot of times these churches were held in homes. There was no Holiday Inn Express. There was no Hilton. There's so much discipleship and so much counseling that happens around the kitchen table. That's why hospitality is essential. Now look at verses 5 through 11. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. So Paul is trying to teach these Jews what truth is while he stays with Aquila and Priscilla. And when they opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent. From now on, I'm going to go to the Gentiles. Strangers. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. There he's at his house again. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord, together with his entire household, and many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking, and do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in this city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months teaching the word of God among them. So as a result of hospitality, Paul stays in Corinth for how long? A year and six months. And did he get an apartment and get settled in? No. It was hospitality that kept him there. He stays in Corinth for a year and a half, preaching the word. Unbelievers become believers. Numbers are added to the church, and believers are being edified and built up. When God says to Paul, I have many people in this city who are my people... It's an encouragement to Paul that those people will show love to him, even though he's a stranger to them. It's an encouragement when, when God says, don't worry, I have many in the city who are my people. It's a protection for Paul. It's God saying, my people take care of you. 
My people have an eye towards strangers, especially the traveling preacher or the misplaced Christian. My people will take care of that. Don't worry. My people are there. Jump ahead to 1824. It says, now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside, a stranger. He's a stranger to them. Here's Aquila and Priscilla, again, an eye toward the stranger. They took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. Gospel truth. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who, through grace, had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. Again, Aquila and Priscilla welcomed the stranger Apollos and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And the result is that this man of God continues to travel and proclaim, and the church is built up. They show him practical accommodations. They help clarify gospel truth over their dinner tables. There are people in this church who are very good at hospitality, whose hearts overflow because of the love of Christ that's been shown to you, and you regularly have people in your homes. There are others here who need to be challenged in this. I was trying to think of examples outside of Scripture, and there are some that I could share here, but I don't want to embarrass anybody, so I'm going to tell you for a few minutes about my mommy and daddy, who I'm very proud of. My youngest brother is about 10 years younger than me. I'm the oldest of four boys. And so they've been empty nesters for a handful of years now. And since becoming empty nesters, they have opened their home to more strangers than I could have ever imagined. I think this is a challenge because when you're an empty nester, sometimes you can be like, finally, all these punks who ruin my stuff are out of my house and I can make it nice again and enjoy some peace and quiet. I expected my parents to do that because rest assured, me and my brothers were not, um, we broke stuff, a lot of stuff. But they have, they have stepped up as we have moved out and it's been an encouragement. Um, a couple examples of the way that they have shown this hospitality to people that they don't know by opening up their homes, which is what hospitality is, is one was a young man at the church who was getting ready to get married and he wanted to save some money, but he really wanted to live with a, an older Christian couple if it was possible, rather than live by himself as he prepared for marriage. So my mom and dad just welcome him in. Like to such a degree that we don't even know, we show up to mom and dad's house and it's like, did you get another son while we were gone? I'm confused. They're like, oh yeah, yeah, that's Cody. Which my other brother who's named Cody is like, oh great, I've been replaced. Um, <laughs> He's like, oh, yeah, that's Cody. You know, he's here, and he's going to live with us until he gets married. And I mean, that guy, this was years ago, he still calls my mom and dad as if one of me or my brothers would call my mom and dad. And they walked with him to help him get ready for marriage. And they help him set some boundaries in, in his engagement. And it was really good. Another thing that they did was there was a couple, Ben and Jeannie, in Oklahoma. And they called my parents' church in Dallas and said, we're Christians, and our child is very sick, and we're going to have to go to Children's Hospital and live there for the better part of a year. 
and we were wondering if there were any Christians who would show hospitality and take us in. My mom and dad said, sure, come on over. They had other kids, pregnancy, high risk, had them into their home, didn't meet them until they showed up with all of their stuff. I was like, Mom, at least do a background check on these people. Come on, like, you don't know who these people are. They're going to be sleeping in the room next to you. What's the deal? Did not meet them until they showed up to the front door with their stuff. And they stayed in my parents' house for over a year as that little baby boy um, went through blood transfusions and bone marrow transfusion stuff, not transfusion, but bone marrow um, issues, all kinds of different procedures, and eventually made it. And that little dude started kindergarten this year. They still have a sweet connection after that year of welcoming a stranger into their home and showing love toward them even though they didn't know him. Well, a year later, Ben and Jeannie call again. Robbie and Terry were, were pregnant again. And this baby has the same condition. Can we stay with you? And my mom and dad actually said yes. And they brought him in. They said, yeah, come on. You know, we'll take care of you. That baby only lived 75 days. That baby didn't make it. My mom and dad mourned with those who mourned, um, wept with those who wept. They rejoiced over the things that were worth rejoicing over. They were there for them, even though previous to that, they were strangers. And even from that, I formed a relationship with Ben. He's kind of like this brother from another mother. And uh, he's a, a deacon and a trustee at their church in Oklahoma. And just a month ago, he and I spent a few hours on the phone talking because their church in Oklahoma is working to put elders in place for the first time in the history of their church. And he heard that I was at a church that's been doing that for over a decade and so we powwowed, and it was edifying, and it was encouraging. And through that relationship that happened because of hospitality, the church here, the church there was built up and made healthier and made holier. Again, my mom and dad, in their empty nest years, chose not to keep their nest very empty. And they have connected through the church to students, international students, at, um, at uh, UTD in Dallas. And so uh, we went in for something recently, and my mom was like, oh, I'm going to have some friends over while y'all are here. And it's like, oh, okay, that's cool, whatever. And we show up, and there's a bunch of Hindus and Muslims in their living room having like an ice cream party and eating pizza and just talking. And, you know, I'm like, hey, mom, what is going on? <laughs> what, I mean, how about a heads up? Throw me a bone. What is the deal? And they, they wanted to make sure that they left their home open to people that were strangers. They, they, they see the beauty of being rightly inconvenienced for the gospel. The point isn't to have a Bible study. The point was to just open up your home and show kindness to strangers. Strangers whose the rest of their family is still in the country that they came from. They don't have close family. So my mom and dad welcomed them in. Sumitra is a young lady that my mom has gotten real close to. Um, you should have seen my aunt and uncle when my mom and dad showed up with a bunch of Hindus to Thanksgiving dinner without telling anybody. It was awesome. <laughs> but Sumitra is one that we've all gotten to know. And, and through that hospitality of being showing love to a stranger, my, my mom has had some conversations that are just wonderful. I mean, really wonderful. She, she said, um, Sumitra came up and said, hey, you have four boys and they all left you. Doesn't that make you sad? And my mom said, no, I couldn't wait for him to leave. 
And Sumitra said, well, in my culture, my, my mom would be so sad if none of, the, none of her boys stayed back to take care of her. And my mom said, oh, well, our God tells us to, that leaving and cleaving is a really good thing. So that was kind of our goal the whole time, is that our boys would leave and cleave, that they would find wives, that they would marry them, that they would start families, and that there would be a generational perspective in the faith that we look forward to that next generation. So when they moved out and they, they got wives and they started having babies, to us, we celebrate that because that's what our God tells us to do. That gospel conversation would have never happened if mom and dad were making an idol out of their home as empty nesters. So why do we have to be seeking to show this? Turn back to Romans 12. I mentioned it earlier, but now we're going to look at it in more detail. From Father Abraham to Aquila and Priscilla, and I'll even say to Robbie and Terry, my mom and dad, we've had modeled for us a love, of, a love for strangers that's far more than just passive. Rather, like the encouragement from Paul to the church in Rome, we are to seek to show hospitality. Why can't it be passive? Why do we have to be proactive in this? Why must we be proactive in our love towards people we don't know? And the answer is found in Romans 12, verse 1. I mentioned it earlier. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to show this love to people you don't know. By the mercies of God. Our motivation for such love towards strangers is the mercies of God. All of these conversations, all these verses on spiritual gifts here in Romans and also over in Corinthians fall within the context of a bigger conversation about love. You may notice that we, we, we and when we were in Corinthians, we, we went through, we looked at all these gifts and we looked at the body and how it worked and then you get to chapter 13 and he says, and I'll show you an even higher way, a better way, love. All of this spiritual movement, be it spiritual gifts, be it spiritual motivations, is about the love of God, particularly love of one another, love of strangers, and even love of enemies. In the same verse as hospitality, you're called to contribute to the needs of the saints, your brothers and sisters in Christ. You do not neglect the church. But the very next verse says to bless those who persecute you. Those are enemies. Those are people who are not your brothers and sisters. And you're called to bless them. So our goal is to stay in step with God's goals. We let God's agenda be our agenda. Our love should be an expression of his love. Hospitality, like other gifts and virtues, is spoken of in the context of what it means to show the love of God to other people. The expression of spiritual gifts and spiritual motivations and spiritual endeavors is an expression to show people that God what God is like through the Spirit. If they see the Spirit in us, they see God in us. God is generously giving, so we are generously giving. God is a God of good order, so we are a people of good order. God is merciful, so we are merciful. God cares about leadership, so we care about leadership. God is hospitable, so we are hospitable. And when we do those things, people look at us and see the love of God. That's why these things aren't optional. That's why you're not allowed to have gifts and sit on them. It's about showing the love of God to other people. To understand the hospitality of God in particular, we're going to look at two Old Testament passages, and the first is in Leviticus 19. 
Turn over to Leviticus 19. It's not a book we spend a ton of time in. Blood, 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 all over the book. It's, all, it's a very bloody book. But there's a reason for that. Leviticus 19.1. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus. We're trying to figure out if our motivation is from God, what hospitality have we been shown from God that we might show hospitality to others, even people we don't know? Leviticus 19.1 says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. So from the outset, the motivation for our holiness, which includes hospitality, is God's holiness. Because God's holiness includes God's hospitality. Now skip ahead to verse 33. That sets the stage here. Be holy for I am holy. And then look at verse 9, Leviticus 19.33. When a stranger sojourns with you in your land, you shall not do him wrong. You shall treat the stranger who sojourns with you as the native among you. And you shall love him as yourself. And look at this. For you were strangers in the land of Egypt... I am the Lord your God. When we talk about hospitality, God says, don't forget Egypt. Egypt is when God's people were enslaved for generations, and God led them out in triumphant procession and, and provided for them abundantly. And the reason that he did so is right here, because I am the Lord your God. That's our motivation for hospitality. Why do you need to be motivated to be hospitable towards others? Because God says, I am the Lord your God. God says to us that we were strangers and we are no longer strangers. The reason that we're nice and loving towards strangers and not, isn't because we're no longer strangers. It's the motive behind why we're not strangers. And that is that I am the Lord your God. We were the outsiders in Egypt, and now we are not. The reason that we're no longer strangers, the reason that we should love strangers, is because God has made us his own. He calls us his own when we were complete and total strangers to the covenants, to the promises, and to him. That is the hospitality of God. He says, you were in Egypt, and I made you my own. Piper says, for the people of God in the Old Testament, the duty of hospitality came right from the center of who God was. I am the Lord your God who made a home for you, who brought you there with all my might and all my soul. Therefore, you shall love the stranger as yourself. You shall be holy as I am holy. Your values shall mirror my values. I am your God. It's a beautiful illustration of this in 2 Samuel 19. Turn to the, to the right in your Bibles. 2 Samuel 9, sorry, not 19, 9. We're looking at this motivation that we have. So we see that the motivation for us is that God has made us his own. And while we were in Egypt, he didn't leave us there. He got Pharaoh's attention through 
the plagues, and then he brought them through the wilderness, and he gave manna, and he provided this food from heaven, and water came from a rock, and he parted seas so that they could go through hospitality, love toward people that he made his own. Second Samuel 9 is a beautiful illustration of that kind of love that we're talking about. Look at verse 1. And David said, so Saul is no longer king, David is king, and David says, is there anyone left in the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? Now there was a servant of the house of Saul whose name was Ziba, and they called him to David, and the king said to him, are you Ziba? And he said, I am your servant. And the king said, is there not still someone of the house of Saul that I may show the kindness of God to? I mean, you hear this king of Israel, David, the wisest king, the most heralded king other than Christ, the one who led to Christ, you see him here saying, is there a stranger, someone I don't know about from the house of Saul that I can show kindness to, hospitality toward? Ziba said to the king, there is still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. Just picture what it would be like. We're about to meet someone named Mephibosheth. Now, while it's hard to say that name, you should be able to identify with him in this passage. There's still a son of Jonathan. He's crippled in his feet. The king said to him, where is he? And Ziba said to the king, he's at the house of Mashur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar. Then King David sent and brought him from the house of Mashur, the son of Amiel at Lodabar, and Mephibosheth. The son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I'm your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear, for I will show you kindness for the sake of your father Jonathan. We are of the same heritage. I will show you kindness. I will restore to you all the land of Saul for your father, and you shall eat at my table always. And he paid homage and said, What is your servant that you should show regard for a dead dog such as I? Why did he call himself a dead dog? Because in that day and age, if you found out someone who could be any threat to the throne, that's what they were, a dead dog. General custom would be to kill that person. Oh, there's someone who might still want to be on the throne? Kill him. Done. So he says, Why are you showing such regard to such a dead dog? As I, then he called Ziba, Paul's servant, and said to him, All that belong to Saul and to all his house I have given to your master's grandson. You and your sons and your servants shall till the land for him and shall bring in the produce that, that your master's grandson may have bread to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, shall always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Then Ziba said to the king, According to all that my lord the king commands his servant, so will your servant do. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table like one of the king's sons. And Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. And all who lived in Ziba's house became Mephibosheth's servants. So Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem, for he ate always at the king's table. Now he was lame in both of his feet. This is an illustration for us to understand the kindness that, that our king has shown to us. Mephibosheth was a stranger to David. Yet David the king shows great love to Mephibosheth in a time where the custom would have been to show quite the opposite. 
The result of the king's kindness toward the stranger was that Mephibosheth, who was lame in both legs, was brought into the house of the king, carried to the table, and seated in a place of honor. He did nothing to deserve it. And he could certainly never repay David for his hospitality. This was a selfless expression of love toward the stranger in need. And this beautiful picture, I mean, you can get wrapped up in that imagery, and that is a beautiful, beautiful illustration. But it's a faint reflection of the utter kindness and the love shown to us by God. When our condition was far worse than being lame in both legs, our condition was one in which we were dead in our trespasses, strangers to the covenant, strangers to the promise, strangers to hope, strangers to purity, strangers to a pure heart. And God says, I'm your God. You're mine. I'm taking you in. We were enemies of God. We've been carried to the table. We've been washed clean. We've been given new hearts. And we're now blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm. God has spared no expense in showing great love to us, a room full of Gentiles who are a bunch of strangers. That is our motivation in making sure we do not neglect to show love to people that we do not know. So what are some possible application points? Like I said, there's six or seven of them. Just try to figure it out on your own. The first one is this. If you have this special gift of hospitality... Don't be okay with just bringing a side dish to the potluck. If you have this gift or you're feeling compelled to respond to this call to be holy and hospitable as a believer in God, be it as a gift, be it as as a faithful spiritual expression, you may find that your place of service is better found as a greeter, greeting people that you don't know and making them feel welcome, or at our welcome booth right here. If you're a visitor this morning, there's going to be people at that welcome booth who really want to meet you. So if you have this gift and you have this motivation and hospitality, greeting in the welcome booth may be a really good fit for you here. We have guests and strangers in here every single time we gather. And to be hospitable is to seek to show love to them and specifically have them into your homes, gathered around your table, loving them through practical provision and gospel truth. Is it a sacrifice? Yeah. Is it going to be uncomfortable? Sure. Does it take some planning? Yes. But is it good and worthwhile because it reflects the love that God has shown us? Absolutely. Here's the second one. This is really convicting to me. Stop hanging out with only the people you already know. I've wondered, do we have cliques in this body? Is it something we address from the pulpit? I don't know. But I know that I'm convicted when I hear that. If you're a Christian who's called to show love to people that you don't know, then it's not okay for you to only hang out with people you know. Is it fun? Yes. Is it easier? Sure. I was reading a blog post this week where the blogger said, in the abstract, I cherish the idea of guests in our home. <laughs> Let's say that again. In the abstract, I cherish the idea of guests in our home, but in reality... I always feel a little too busy and a little too tired. 
That's why it's always easier to hang out with people you know. You don't have to put on some front as though your home looks like a Pinterest board. Don't make an idol out of your home. Like it's okay to have someone over even if there's like dog or cat hair. Some of y'all are like, don't have me over. Stop it. It's okay if there's toys out. If the laundry's not perfectly done. Don't make an idol out of our home. As well, our culture minimizes what it means to know someone and to be their friend. We're friends with people on Facebook that we don't talk to or see. That's not friendship, and that's not love. The reality is this. There are people who are fellow members of this body who you've walked with for years who are still strangers to you. I bet that everybody in here could look around and say, yep, I don't know you at all. I know your name, and it pretty much stops there. What's the encouragement for us this morning? Invite them to your home and get to know them. Third is that in the early days of Crosspoint, Ben encouraged the young and small membership. We were over in a smaller uh, worship center, sanctuary thing, combo over there. And one of the, I'll never forget when he encouraged us um, that the church would be built up over the dinner table. The church would be built up over your dinner table. This created an intentionality with our dinner tables where our aim was to have strangers, coworkers, and neighbors in our home, some believing, some unbelieving, so that the practical love of Christ could be shown and so that the gospel could go forth. The elders of the church are called to be hospitable and well thought of by outsiders. We're called to do that as a movement of obedience toward God, but we also are called to do that as an example an example that you guys are supposed to be able to look at and say, yeah, we're going to see church built up over the dinner table. One of the leading evangelists of our time said this, so Christian hospitality makes room for fellow believers, and Christian hospitality makes room for global gospel carriers. But the note we're striking here is an evangelistic one, inviting in the outsider, welcoming unbelievers into our space in hopes of bringing Jesus into theirs. Welcoming unbelievers into our space in hopes of bringing Jesus into theirs. Fourth, it's important to consider how one must be prepared in order to show hospitality. It's kind of hard if you have no time and no resources to show hospitality. This is so practical And it may even seem boring, but we're talking about the deeply spiritual issue of loving people that you don't know. If you're steeped in consumerism and you're always looking at what your next purchase might be, then hospitality opportunities will be less evident to you even when you see them. And when you do see them, uh, you'll have already set your heart to spend your time and resources on something else. Do you realize we carry around these little evil devices? They don't have to be evil, but oftentimes they are that just give you more junk to buy? Like I'm on Facebook, and it's got this little thing over here. It's like, you want to buy this? I'm like, no. What about this? No. What about this, 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 this? No. Leave me alone. I'm with my friends. Get it? On Facebook with my friends. (laughs) I actually bought a Suburban, and the next day Facebook advertised that Suburban for me to buy. You don't think you're being targeted? How did they do that? But we're in a culture where just consumerism, something else, you need this, you need this, 
You need this, yet we're called to hospitality. The consumeristic mindset is severely detrimental to the heart that should be seeking to show hospitality. We should be poised to show hospitality, but we will not spend and be spent in that direction if we're constantly poised to just buy the next thing, to buy something new. A lot of times we will save our money for a particular item. Maybe you're wanting a new piece of furniture or a new TV or a new car, and we will save our money and we will be intentional about it. We have to be intentional about having resources by which we can show love to people we don't know. That's what God's saying here. And the reason behind it is, I'm the Lord, your God. Fifth, earlier this week I put a need before the body to supply financial relief to the Thornton family. Derek and Casey Thornton are members of this body and they're serving in another context overseas that many of y'all know about. Their mom and dad, Delma and Dickie Thornton, and then also aunts and uncles and then Derek's sister as well, uh, were devastated by the floods in Louisiana. They lived in Denham Springs, which was an area that was hit very hard. This family, who are close friends of Crosspoint, have had multiple cars totaled, a trailer travel totaled, 27 inches of water in their home, 27 inches of water in their home, where damages won't be covered by insurance because this is a thousand-year flood and you can't have flood insurance on that. Talk about being in a tight spot. Our goal is to raise at least $10,000 to send to them by the end of the week. It's hospitality. I'm asking the people in this room to raise $10,000 to send to this family by the end of the week. To literally put your money where your mouth is and lovingly embrace them by providing for these people you don't know. We're asking that you consider what God is leading you to give above and beyond your normal giving, not in place of it. The Thornton family are strangers to some of you. You don't know them. They will never pay you back. And that's what makes it so beautiful. It's the love of God that he has shown to us when we were still strangers. Sixth application point is to constantly assess your motives. You are called to seek to show love to strangers and to show that love without grumbling. That means your motive and your motivation really matters when it comes to hospitality. Without grumbling. Don't end this worship service and look at your spouse and say, I guess we've got to have someone over. Oh, that's grumbling. I think we all know what it is. Here's a reason that we have to constantly assess our motives. Do you realize that with our current state of government and the current crazy election that's coming up and the current ever-changing legislation that's related to churches, that it is possible that within your lifetime you will no longer receive a tax break for money that you give to the church? Do you realize that's a possibility? There may come a time in your lifetime where some churches are recognized by our government as a nonprofit 501c3 organization and other churches are not recognized by the government. And those churches that are not recognized, you won't get a tax break for giving. For some, the motivation of a tax break will be gone and we will find if there is any motivation left to give. That's why you have to check your motive. The tax break may be gone someday. Will you still be hospitable? Will you still give? Will you still seek to show hospitality? Or if that's your only motive now, let's start with heart change now rather than waiting until that's gone. If you're regularly enjoying 
the profound hospitality that God has shown towards you, never taking it for granted, never losing sight of the fact that God spared no expense to seat you at his table, then your motivations will remain pure and your giving will remain lavish. The seventh thing is just keep your eyes open. We're called to seek to show hospitality. Seek out opportunities. What God is implying there is the same thing he was implying in Acts. I've got people here, and they're going to take care of things that need to be taken care of. Those people in this setting are you. So keep your eyes open and seek to show that lavish, lavish generosity and hospitality to others that God has shown to you. Let's pray. Lord, we love you very much, and we are thankful. Um, we're thankful for how our king has been towards us and how you have made us your people. We're thankful that while we were strangers to the covenant and strangers to the promises and strangers to all the holiness that you call us to, that you provided Christ, your son, as a perfect sacrifice and substitute for us. We do not have to pay the penalty of our sins because Jesus paid the penalty of our sins. I pray that that would never become common to us, that we would be so encouraged that we cannot help but show your love to everyone we come in contact with, whether we know them or not. Lord, help us to take this supper with humble hearts. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to take the supper. We do it every week. And this week, I just want you to consider that imagery of Mephibosheth, lame in both legs, carried to the table, seated with the king in a place of honor. It's a small example, a small helping that we have this morning, but it's indicative of so much blessing that we have received in Christ. We examine ourselves when we take the supper. It says, let us examine ourselves, meaning this morning, a fitting way to examine yourself would be to say, do I care about other people that I don't know? Am I only given to people that I do know? How am I seeking to show love to strangers? That would be a good examination this morning. Enjoy God and examine your hearts and trust that the Holy Spirit will do what the Holy Spirit does to move in your life so that God's love is seen properly in your life.